0: Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Well, I missed it, and really I should be keeping a calendar of these things going forward, but Slate.com celebrated its 20th anniversary last month. And if you'll recall, we went into some detail about Slate's founding in episode 32, which is uh, a chapter episode, chapter episode 5.2. But today we have Slate's current editor-in-chief, Julia Turner, and a former editor and current chairman of the Slate Group, Jacob Weisberg, on the pod to discuss the history of Slate and the contributions that it made to the evolution of digital media on the web. My special thanks to Panoply, Slate's podcast division, for hosting us in their studio for this excellent discussion. Julia Turner, uh, Jacob Weisberg, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Happy to join you, Brian. Thanks for asking us. So we're going to be talking about uh, Slate, the history of Slate, um, celebrating 20th anniversary uh, last month. Before we get into that, I just want to start with um, how you guys both joined Slate. I believe, Julia, you, looking at your LinkedIn, sort of Slate has been the majority of your career, but... Did you have any experience with online media before joining
1: Slate? No. I think when you guys hired me, you thought I was must be a digital expert because I was <laughs> young, but I worked at a monthly print magazine and knew barely anything, so I just faked it for the first couple of years. Um, but, yeah, I joined Slate in 2003. Before that, I worked at Timing for a couple of years, um, and part of the appeal, obviously, was working online.
0: Uh, Jacob, you have a, a longer career, um, all sorts of places, Um, It's because I'm old. (laughs) When you you joined Slate almost at the very beginning, right, like 1996? That's
2: right. So I had uh, worked with Michael Kinsley, who was the founder of Slate, when we were both at the New Republic. And when he started Slate at Microsoft, he went out there in 1995. Uh, I thought about going, but I had... um, I had taken a job at New York Magazine where I was covering the 1996 presidential campaign, and I thought I had to at least see that through. And then various things happened there. The editor got fired, so I ended up getting to Slate, I think, in September 96, which was just a couple of months after the launch.
0: Right. But early enough uh, that you know this is kind of brand new, this is before going off and joining crazy startups is even cool yet. (laughs) Did people think you were crazy for joining an online publication?
2: A little bit. I mean, people were supportive. You know, Kinsley had a great reputation. I mean, he was a beloved figure. And so people, I think, wanted it to succeed but didn't quite know what it would be. We didn't quite know what it would be. But I remember a thing I used to say is you don't get that many chances in a career to be a part of the invention of a whole new medium. You know, and you think about the early days of radio and the early days of television. Of course, I would say now the early days of podcasting. But there was this excitement that, one, we could do the kind of journalism we wanted to do, which in my case was political journalism, uh, but also be part of figuring out what this thing was going to be.
0: Well, uh, with the caveat, obviously, that uh, neither of you were there for the very, very beginning, but could for the listeners, could you just give us even the oral tradition of, of Slate's founding? Is it... Uh, Kinsley goes to Microsoft and proposes a magazine, or did they come to him? How did that work out?
2: So, you know, going back to the New Republic, which is really, I think, in a lot of ways where the origins were, we were always frustrated by the problem of lead time. That's probably another term that needs explanation to, to younger readers, but that's the gap between when you finish your story or when the magazine published and when it would actually get in the hands of readers. And even at the New Republic, which was a pretty quick turnaround weekly magazine, that could be five days a week. And if you wrote about politics and news, it was frustrating because things would change and the magazine would kind of be outdated by the time you'd get it. And I think Kinsley and I and other people both thought that the Internet, because of the instantaneous distribution, was a way to eliminate lead time. You would press a button when your story was finished and people could read it immediately. And Kinsley took that idea originally, not just to Microsoft, but to Time. And both, as I've heard the story, both Time and Microsoft were interested. But Time, Inc. said, come develop the idea and we'll think about whether we want to launch it. And Bill Gates said, great, come here and we'll do it. Mm -hmm. And at that point, Kinsley packed his bags and moved to
1: Seattle. Right. Wasn't one of the other ideas, not just eliminating lead time, but also the idea that digital publishing could revolutionize the business model small smart magazines like the new republic had to spend a ton of money to you know print the magazine buy the paper ship the paper the model and you know not everyone knows this but when you when uh, you send a bunch of magazines to the newsstand uh, they sell a few, and the ones that they don't sell, you have to, like, buy back. Right, like, they it's, send just, back. it's just an absurd uh, cost structure for print, especially at that scale. And so part of the thinking was, like, hey, we'll we'll make it once with pixels, and it'll get everywhere for free. Right, right. there's this
0: great um, Ken Aletta New Yorker piece from the time um, where, you know, he's, he's talking about essentially um, Kinsley going to Seattle and, you know, the culture clash of working at Microsoft, but... The whole thing is about getting rid of the, the, you know, cutting down trees and shipping paper out in the trucks and stuff like that. And it seems like from day one it was all about sort of not blowing up the model but streamlining it. Like there would be all these cost savings and speed and things like that.
2: Yeah, that's right. We have the journalistic project, which we are excited about. There was the sort of distribution opportunity. But there was also an economic project. And that's exactly right. You know, we we thought well, we'll take away most of the fixed costs, of print, which are the printing, the distribution, the ink and the paper, and you know, Kinsley used to love making jokes about we don't have to chop any down any trees and that's why, you know, we're the future. But figuring out how to make high quality journalism work economically was part of the project and part of the idea from the very start, even though in nineteen ninety six we didn't have much idea how we were going to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, reading that article is such a – and this is this is the story that I'm interested in. It's such an interesting document because they're in early editorial meetings, and they're literally trying to come up with basic conceptual ideas. Originally, they were going to um, – I think originally they did um, release an issue every Friday. The idea was as you might print it up and read it over the weekend. There were things like page numbers and things like that. Like they're in real time figuring out what this new medium structurally – is and how it'll function.
2: Yep that that all happened. I mean we had a uh, we had a close every week. I think it was on Wednesday, and uh, we used to there was a the lingo from the time we used to prop the magazine that essentially meant publish. I think it was short for propagate or something, which was some idea um, from the from the early net early internet. But I mean I think we were pretty quickly interrupting the weekly cycle to add additional things. But it wasn't. People point to and, and Julia has just directed this fantastic project on Slate's history where she's had some of the much younger people at Slate look at this history from, you know, in most cases before they were fully conscious. <laughs> uh, but when uh, Princess Diana died in the car crash, it was over a long weekend, and we sort of didn't get no, out no, of it. no, it
1: was during a down week. It was this, not really this, but even more so. Right, in so August, one yeah. of the conventions of a print weekly, sometimes weekly, quote unquote weekly, is published 50 times a year mm. or 48 times a year because mm. was a little cheaper and. You could still call yourself a weekly. And the magazine would essentially shut down for a week in August right. and at Christmas. And everyone would go on vacation and how civilized. And I kind of wish we could still do it. <laughs> um, and so the week when Princess Diana died in late August, I think, uh, was a down week. Absolutely. And the That's editors kind of consulted and were like, hmm, should we come back to cover this? And they're like, no, nah, you know, what are we going <laughs> to add? It's just a news story. What do we have to add? Right. So, and that was really one of the, you know, CNN and Salon, actually, right. our, our mortal foe, yeah. uh, you know, it, it was one of the first stories that you really did follow on the internet. I mean, I remember that as a college student at the time, feeling like, oh, this was a thing where you went and kept looking up. You know, what as was a, as a
0: funny coincidence, I I spoke to Linda McCutcheon of uh, Pathfinder. She was working at Pathfinder at the time, and she specifically mentioned that story, the the Princess Diana, as the story that taught them, or that she okay. remembers as being the watershed moment that they learn this has to be a 24-7 sort of operation. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Slate sort of experienced the same thing. Or do you remember like the, the Monica Lewinsky story? Like, Do you remember when it changed, when you realized, okay, this is not a scheduled publication, this is an always-on sort of thing?
2: Well, one thing I do remember, I mean, it was always a little different for me because starting at the end of the ninety six campaign, I was writing daily. So already by September 1996, two, two months after the magazine launch, we were we were publishing at least some daily updates, and I remember Kinsley used to say, "We're giving giving you the keys to the car," which meant I had access to the CMS and I could publish directly onto the site twenty four hours a day and covering a campaign. That was a great breakthrough. The, the only other uh, internet reporter on that campaign was Jake Tapper, then of Salon, uh, now of CNN, and uh, you know we used to we sort of felt like we were in on a secret because we would as soon as an event would happen we would publish a, a response to it, and we would beat the New York Times, we'd beat the Washington Post. They wouldn't publish, even when they would publish on the Internet, it wouldn't come out till 11 or 11.30 p.m. that night, notionally for the next day's paper. And you have this great thrill of getting to be first, From the, I think really from the very beginning.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, that makes me think of a really sort of uh, technical question, but when I spoke to the Hotwired guys, they launched about a year before um, Slate did, There was no CMS. They were hard coding all of their pages. Uh, Very quickly, they created their own CMS. Did Slate have an early CMS? Or you know, today you would get it off the shelf or something. But
2: we we did. We originally started using, and I don't know if I'll get this one hundred percent right, but we started using some uh, product that was being used by other Microsoft sites that we thought was not really suited. the kind of publishing we wanted to do, partly because of this problem of remote publishing. We had people all over the country, and we wanted people to be able to publish in real time from these different locations. And we took on a very big project. We built a CMS. We had a team of about six engineers who spent, I don't know, about a year Mm -hmm. uh, building something which had various iterations, but I remember it being called Workbench. Mm -hmm. And that CMS was so ahead of its time and so good that, first of all, we were still using it seven or eight years later?
1: We used it until, I think, like 2006. It was called Gutenberg by the time. I don't know if it was always called Gutenberg. It it was this incredible Volvo, just like reliable, solid, instantaneous. It was a very good CMS that they built.
0: And as you said, like, so you would be able to publish directly you're not sending in material to have someone else format it. you can publish directly yourself you have the keys to the car
2: yeah well we did most writers were edited and they would either send their piece to an editor who would publish it or sometimes like with my stuff that would be published in real time a copy editor would go in after it was published Mm -hmm. and and try to clean it up if you made any mistakes but it was funny because you we used to hear people at other publications was constant complaining about their cms and people at Slate, like, we loved Gutenberg. It yeah. eventually so, outgrew so its so usefulness.
1: Gutenberg Good, was like state of the state of the art in like the late '90s, from what I understand. Yeah. And then we kept using it, and in fact, we're still publishing on it after we were sold from Microsoft to the Washington Post Company. Um, and then it really was like the Volvo that had 250,000 miles on it, in which, like, you weren't going to die, and it wasn't going <laughs> to die, but it really couldn't do anything <laughs> fancy, and so eventually we had to let it go. But I think don't it did— Don't try to merge in traffic. Yeah, but it did, it did become the guts, I think, of Workbench, which was right, the right. enterprise— I think it was the reverse. We had Gutenberg, and they took the guts of it and turned it into Workbench, which was an enterprise CMS that they tried to sell, including to us, for a few years. Yeah. I don't know if that still exists.
0: Yeah. Um, and Slate launched from the very beginning with, I believe, like message boards, but also comments. Like, so Slate from day one embraced, to a certain extent, getting feedback and having the readers talk back to to the writers.
2: We always had a very clear separation between what was the writers and what was the comment. But we had this area it was called the fray, and that spoke to the idea of what we want. We wanted it to be a very open, open kind of conversation, and we allowed sort of maximum freedom of speech, but I think we, one of the things we found early on that, that was later discovered by a lot of other people is that you needed to do some moderating, and we used to have someone with the job was called Fraymaster, mm. and the Fraymaster had to try to control the fragrance, and it was essentially <laughs> to try to inject civility into the discussion that would get very heated, but there were also, you know, in the early days, you would have the kind of unpleasant sort of trolly discussion you often find now. You also had great discussions in mm-hmm. the fray. And I think in the early days, I remember I used to kind of go into the comment threads around my pieces, and a lot of our writers did, uh, specifically around certain subject areas where you would have really knowledgeable
0: commenters. Uh, Jacob, one more question that you could probably speak to um, more directly. Um, the evolution of what other people in the media thought about online, like you mentioned. You're covering the 1996 election. I think I heard that you had to argue your way onto the bus or the plane or whatever. Um, do you remember that evolving in the late 90s where, you know, oh, you're just some rinky-dink online publication to, okay, you're you're just as important as The Washington Post or The New York Times or whatever? You know?
2: There was the, the sort of, there were these early cycles of exuberance and despair about mm-hmm. Internet journalism. At least that's the way I remember it. So... Additionally, skepticism. Um, then, you know, as the first Internet bubble really heated up, 1999, there was tremendous enthusiasm. And the, you know, why would you do that turned to why didn't I do that or can I still do that? I mean, there were, there were a lot of people who then went overboard thinking the Internet journalism was the future and print journalism was doomed. And then the crash came and it went all the way back the other way, and I would say the general view in the media was digital journalism was a mistake doesn 't work I mean people still maybe like the journalism but but the idea that it would work economically you know and the, and the advertising market, which had been starting to emerge, just dried up and went away because it had been very heavily fueled by those sort of bubble companies
0: well let's let 's talk about the economics of it because uh, slate famously um, has flirted with paywalls at various degrees over the course of its life, just like Pathfinder, just like uh, Hotwire did. Um, But I believe in 1998, Slate had a a paywall for a whole year. Um, And I believe that (laughs) one quote I read is that people internally were sort of waiting and rooting for people to realize that it was a mistake. Um, So this notion that it's more important to be a part of the conversation because then there's more readers and thus you can advertise to them. Is that the lesson that Slate learned um, with a full paywall versus sort of the sort of paywall that you have now, the premium paywall?
2: Well, I'll turn this over to Julia in a minute, but this just in terms of the, the ancient history of the paywall. I mean, the way I remember it was a lot of us thought it was a mistake when we were doing it, but we felt like we had to try it anyway because it was part of our experimentation around what will work online. Uh, But it was a tough year to be a writer at Slate because it meant what had been a large and growing audience was sort of drastically contracted, and you were suddenly writing for many fewer people and getting much less response to what you wrote. Even though in a lot of ways, you know, in 1998, to sign up 20,000-plus paid subscribers, it was 1999 a year, You know, account for inflation, but that was twenty thousand page subscribers was was a meaningful number, Uh, but it wasn't a really meaningful amount of revenue in terms of what it was costing us to put out the magazine, and it wasn't a satisfying number of readers for the staff. And so, I think the conclusion we pretty quickly came to collectively was: we still haven't figured out how to make money. Let's experiment with a bigger audience strategy rather than with a smaller audience strategy.
1: And then when we relaunched uh, a version of a paid program two and a half years ago with Slate Plus, our thinking, I think, was informed by this original experience and the way the Internet has changed. Um, And we, rather than putting all of our content behind a paywall or even a substantial portion of it, Uh, created a program of kind of extras and benefits you know special podcast segments extra content some of the history of slate stuff that jake was just referring to was available for plus members who are presumably most interested in our history um and i'm really pleased with how it's going i mean i think you're seeing a lot of experimentation with paywall models in the media these days but um i think there is sort of a difference in kind among the sorts of content that people are willing to pay for the whole thing and it tends to be the type of content that allows them to uh, win, whether in the financial markets or their fantasy sports leagues. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, fundamentally, we're a magazine of opinion and analysis, and we try and make everybody smarter about the world. But we're, we try to be the best second read on things, I think, sometimes. And, and that like we're, you're not actually going to win your fantasy betting pool from Slate. <laughs> so we feel like a supplemental uh, membership model makes more sense for us now.
2: Julia has really refocused us very strongly around loyalty and depth and engagement. So it's not how many readers we touch in the course of a month, which is sort of the old game, the reach game. And it's much more how much time do our readers spend with us? How involved are they with what we're doing? How much do they get out of it? And and Slate Plus, I think, is really at the core of that and and really supports that strategy because these are – the people who love Slate, these are the people who want even more than we give them for free. These are the people who want to come to our, our events, who want to hear about what goes on behind the scenes, and they want to support us. And a big part of the pitch for Slate Plus is please help us do the kind of journalism that we want to do. Even though we're a for-profit, you know, we're, we're, we're asking partly for just support and not support in exchange for benefits
1: and i think you know this circles back around to the original theory of the case for slate which is hey we can make the distribution and production costs essentially nil on the web or much much lower than they would be in print and i think one of the lessons of the last 20 years as you know legacy publications and startups have gotten into the digital publishing landscape is that it's true you don't have to pay to chop down trees and pulp them, and you don't have to pay newsstand return costs, and there's a whole set of costs you've eliminated. But to actually make a top-of-the-line online publication, there's a whole set of costs we didn't anticipate, whether it's the server space or really having a first-rate dev and product team. you know, For the first 10 years, we kind of got to skim off of Microsoft a little bit in that way rather than having a huge staff to do that. Um, and, so, and of course, the rise of the social web. There's sort of that distribution team. So I haven't actually done, it would have been fun to do this as part of the 20th, like the kind of uh, New Republic 1996 production costs, uh, you know, back of the envelope, mm-hmm. and then kind of translate that into web costs in 2016. But um, I think one of the lessons of the last 20 years is that it actually does cost a fair amount to do online publication, right? It's not the, it's not the elimination of production costs. It's right. a different kind of production cost. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about um, Slate's culture and, and voice. Uh, you know, People credit Gawker for contributing to the voice of the web or, or suck going further back, things like that. Uh, what do you think um, Slate's contribution to the voice of, of digital media has been? Well, there's not
2: one voice to it, but in terms of the development of, of Internet voices and an Internet style, I think Slate was really key to it. Uh, and I would describe it more than anything else as a conversational tone and a personal tone, a, a direct tone. I think in, in the, the early days, I would have said it came more than anything else from email. And, you know, in an email, you want to be concise. You don't want to waste time. You want to be a little funny if you can. You want to be personal because you're a person addressing another person or, some, you know, or, or, or a group of people. And it's back and forth. And I think when so many of the early Slate features, uh, like these email dialogues we would do, and there was a daily diary, uh, and we would do something called the breakfast table, where two people would sort of have a back and forth. sometimes they were a married couple would go back and forth discussing what was in the news. That conversational tone, I think, became a much more pervasive tone, not just on the internet, but I think it fed back into print, you know, and I think the style of print magazines and ultimately print printed newspapers, became more conversational and web-like. And I think you can attribute that to, to Slate more than anywhere else. I mean, certainly Gawker, when it started, had had an influence. But there's a, the Gawker tone, I would say, is a kind of subspecies that goes in a certain direction, um, dare I say, the tone of snark, mm-hmm. which is a tone that Slate has always tried to avoid. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I'm curious to, I've always wondered this, whether the feeling of trying to connect through pixels rather than the more familiar paper contributed to the sense that you wanted there to be more personality and voice on the page and a little bit more looseness than was common. I mean, certainly the voice of the New Republic under Kinsley was arch and writerly and had some sprinklings of wit in it, but just the the looseness, the like, smart friend on the other end of the sofa watching the world with you tone. Was that like a response, the same way people put exclamation points in their email to be like, <laughs> I'm a human here? Like, was that, was well, there something of a response to the form?
2: Yes. I, I almost never would use a first-person pronoun when I wrote before Slate. I mean, it was a point of pride that you didn't write about yourself. And after I started writing for Slate, I just started doing it all the time. And you have to ask, why is that happening? And I think it was because you were sitting at a terminal and the audience you imagined was a person sitting at the other end of a ter- terminal, r- receiving what you were saying in something like real time, and being able to respond in all of these ways which you couldn't respond in print. Someone who might write an email back to you, they mo- might post something on the message board, they might have their own blog it's, at some point. There were, there were lots of ways they could respond, but the, but the engaged readers did respond. So you were writing as a more kind of personal character. You know, and I remember early days we, we had these debates, too, about whether we'd put pictures up. And I always thought we should have pictures of the writers because it was, part of, it was part of the difference from print. It was part of how the audience conceived of the magazine. Slate writers are a very modest group. And they always said, oh, no, you can't put our pictures up. And I thought they were just being modest. They meant it. They didn't want their pictures up. I think at one point we did some kind of woodcut or something like <laughs> that. It was a battle to get slate writers to, to, uh, put, to allow their pictures to be used when I was editor. But I but I thought that went to the point about how how, how personal the medium was as compared to print magazine.
0: Uh, two more possible contributions or pioneering. Um, aggregation, because I think Slate really early on had a column that was in today's papers or something yep. like that. Um, so this idea that because the web is this hypertext medium and you can refer, it's referral, um, that... Aggregation being something that is an editorial, has value editorially as well.
2: Yeah, well, well, Julie, one of the very good pieces Julie commissioned was about this, and of course I remembered it about half right, so I'll let her give the, the accurate version, a version. But one thing I will say we didn't use the term aggregation. That, that right. was a later term, but I think it describes something which we started doing in 1996 with today's papers.
1: Yeah, I mean, the initial conceit there, I think, was Mike's, which is and, – and I think came from the sense that on the web you wanted to be efficient with people's time, um, and the thought was, all right, we'll read all the front pages of the major newspapers, and we'll summarize them for you in one handy email and say, okay, everybody agrees this is the top story, but the Post played up this angle, and the Times played up this angle, and isn't that a little bit interesting? And it made you feel like a savvy or news consumer, um, which is you know, part of Slate's mission all along and remains so to this day. And it spun out in a couple other forms. We also had a kind of aggregation feature about criticism called Summary Judgment where we'd round up what all the, you know, sort of like an early Metacritic or Rotten Tomatoes type mm-hmm. feature um, written at one point by a now Pulitzer winner Emily Nussbaum. Uh-huh. That was like one <laughs> of my first editing gigs at Slate.
2: Um, We summarized the supermarket tabloids. We had a feature called Keeping Tabs, which actually said what was in the National Enquirer and the Star and whatever else. Indeed.
1: Uh, And And we had another magazine. Yes, which was my first column that's late, um, which was sort of summarizing all the uh, articles in other magazines and which ones were worth reading and which ones you could skip. Um, And we did that pretty consistently for... You know, 10 years, I think, and then eventually we felt like summarizing the front page of the newspapers once a day was a rhythm that didn't make sense anymore in an era of round-the-clock yeah. aggregation. And so now our, the, the descendant of today's papers is the Slatest, which is our news blog and our kind of aggregation-slash-media-watching project.
0: Jacob, you, Sorry. in the uh, 20th anniversary podcast that Slate released, you sort of sheepishly posited that maybe Slate pioneered the, the slideshow format well, I guess that's debated.
2: I, rem- I don't remember seeing them anywhere else before Slate, And I remember, you know, I spent a year in um, 1998. I took a year off politics and wrote about culture. And I did some of my pieces then in this slideshow format, which was, I felt like one of these early discoveries that you can show and not tell in on the Internet. And if you're writing something about visual art or a visual subject, you can you can write the piece as... Essentially, I I conceived it more as a sort of slideshow with captions, with the the whole article would be in the form of long captions, but the piece might be 1,200 words or 1,500 words. Mm -hmm. And I know we were doing those in 1997. They're certainly different from the kinds of slideshows that emerged elsewhere, but I can't remember anybody else doing any kind of slideshows before that.
0: Um, Moving ahead quite a bit in time, um, Slate has been such a pioneer in podcasting. Tell me the story. I, I get the sense that it was almost an accidental thing going into podcast.
1: Well, I think all of our innovations were probably accidents of one kind or another. I mean, basically, they all came out of a spirit of, like, we're here on the frontier of this new medium if we find a cool new tool. Let's uh, you know, see what we can figure out to do with it. But the specific story of how we got into podcasting as early as we did, and our first big podcast launched more than ten years ago, I think the Political Gabfest launched in two thousand and five. And podcasting itself started in 04. Mm-hmm. Um so we actually had a partnership with NPR to reinvent their the concept of a midday show, give it a little bit more voice, give it some of that um, kind of human personal zip that had become characteristic of Slate at the time. And we hired this audio ace from NPR, Andy Bowers, to be our Slate lead on how to merge the Slate voice and the NPR voice to create this new show. We had a lovely time working together. It didn't end up quite reinventing the midday show as we had dreamed. We pulled back from our involvement in it, and we still had this great audio ace around. And he was like, well, you know, there's this cool new format called podcast, What If I Make Some?, And this was when you were editor, I think. Yeah. So
2: I'm not sure why I'm telling the story, but. (laughs) Well, you've got it exactly right. I mean, we hired this guy, Andy Bowers, from NPR to be our producer on this midday show. And uh, the show was a lot of fun, but it did get over time more conservative. And you know, I learned people at NPR used to say, we want this to sound really different from all our other shows. And eventually I realized that meant we want this to sound exactly the same as all our other shows. (laughs) And so we were kind of losing interest in it a little bit. And Andy said, I mean, he was already making podcasts in his garage. He was doing one with his daughter. And he, he immediately grasped the possibilities of this medium. And he said, I want to work on this instead. And I'd been the beneficiary of, of Michael Kinsley letting me take a year to do what I was interested in doing when I didn't want to do my regular job anymore. So I said, sure, go ahead. And uh, he sort of started us on this program and uh, you can listen to the early days of the political gab fest which was the first show it's it's funny it's such a you know that people are so used to that format now it really sounded different yeah. when when they started but they've all they had from the, from i think early on this great chemistry you put three smart people in a room together pick out a few topics for them to talk about and that formula worked so well and and julia has the Cultural Gab Fest, which has been going not quite as long. Uh, but there is something about that kind of conversation in podcast form that it's like listening to a group of really smart friends who, who make you smarter, and they're just so much fun that they become this kind of appointment listening for people. I mean, even though the, part of the idea of podcasts, you can listen to it any, any way you want, there are a lot of people, including members of my family, who know when these podcasts are released and listen to them right away.
1: And even that chat show format though was a bit of an evolution because one of the insights was I mean what Andy initially tried was reading our shows reading our stories yep. out loud right. and doing sort of audio mm. versions of the stories, which worked fine. And actually we've just, you know, everything comes full circle. We've just started doing that again. There's a there's a feature on our mobile pages now where you can tap to listen if you start reading something in the Starbucks line and then you want it to follow you around the city. But from
2: spoken Layer, and I love that. I have to say I've been using it all the time. Yeah, it's
1: really great. But but anyway, so that was one of the initial features and, and it worked fine but, you know, felt uh, like it was kind of transposing one medium to another. And I think Andy's insight for the Gabfest was actually just taken from how fun and rollicking slate editorial meetings have always been. And it's a glorious tradition that continues to this day. Um, But just the kind of freewheeling spirit of debate and candor and like calling bullshit on other people's views, but in a really friendly, uh, spirited, loving way. uh, That was, I think, Andy's key insight. It's like the best way to learn from journalists is to hear what journalists, how journalists talk to each other when they think they're in private, uh, and to, to make that public through podcasts.
2: And Julie, I think it really picks up on the same thing that happened with the early days we were talking about of, of Slate in, in written form, which is you drop the formality. You take all of this somewhat arbitrary structure you, that you have with print journalism. It has to be a certain length. It uses a certain diction. You don't have profanity, which maybe isn't that important. I mean, Slate has never loved profanity, but just the freedom to use it when you want to use it and in podcasts it's the same it doesn't have the NPR clock it doesn't have have to have breaks at regular times it doesn't it's not regulated by the FCC so you can use whatever kind of language you want you know you're doing a podcast it's just it's different in these subtle ways that actually end up changing everything about the
0: tone of it uh we'd be remiss if we didn't mention some of the people some of the writers that have come through I mean for a, a tech audience I mean n- names they would know like Tim Wu and um Farhad Manju, but no all sorts of people from Paul Krugman Matt Iglesias like so the the people that you were able to attract to Slate over the years um, what do you think was there a sense that experimentation sort of attracted people and and the getting away like you were just speaking about like these formalities and and this sense that at Slate you could maybe do more of whatever you wanted or find what you wanted to do.
2: Yeah, I think uh, it's the, f- the freedom you have as a writer, the intelligence of the other writers and of the editors, so it's, being, it's a being part of that group. And also, I think and this is something you know, I would say I inherited from Kinsley, and, and David Plotz' has inherited from me, and Julia's inherited from David I think we really see our places uh, ourselves as a place that finds talent, develops talent, grows talent, where talent blossoms. We don't buy talent at the top of the market in journalism from other publications, partly because we've never been able to afford to and partly because it's more fun to find talent, mm-hmm. you know, and those people stay grateful and loyal to the magazine, whether it's an Atul Gawande or, or a Tim Wu. They really, I mean, I, a lot of those people are my friends. I see them all the time. They remember, and I like, guess it's Slate was the first place they published an article, and they have this
1: loyalty that
2: comes from that.
0: And to this day, attracting—that's still your strategy—is to—is to discover talent more than. Uh,
1: yeah, uh-huh. definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think the the uh, upheaval in the journalism market over the last couple of years creates different opportunities. Yes. Like in general, the the, the kind of Facebook fueled boom in journalism made a lot more journalism jobs, which created some movement, and then has caused the loss of a lot of journalism jobs, which has created more movement. So. I've, I've been hiring youngsters and and some vets alike uh, just because I think there's a lot of opportunity but uh, it's it's a place where what our audience looks for are voices and authorities and people who bring a real vision and perspective and set of insights about the world and that's something that um, you really have the freedom to be yourself within the journalism of Slate, and I think a lot of writers of all ages respond to that.
2: Yeah, I think if you read e- even a lot of pub- a lot of c- competitor publications that I really admire, the institutional voice is much more powerful than the inv- individual voices, and people are usually have a consciousness that they've read Gawker or read BuzzFeed or read the New York Times more than...
1: Or The New Yorker, even, or, which has yeah. some of the greatest writers out there, but there is sort of this, you know, institutional tone of understatement
2: that... There's a way you write for The New Yorker. And I think, there's a, I think there's a tone that Slate has, but I think it leaves much more space for the individual voices, you know, and the way a Dolly Lithwick or a Will Salatin or so obsessed Stevenson. I mean, so many people who've been our stars over the years have a Slate voice that's so distinctive, that you recognize right away, not only this was something from Slate, but that this was that person.
0: Two questions to wrap up with. Um, we've talked several times about how at the beginning, from the beginning, there was this idea that we'll cut out these fixed costs of the dead trees and the trucks into delivery. And um, When um, Michael Kinsley left Slate in 2002, he told David Carr that he didn't think that he had done what he had intended to do, which was sort of make it possible for that kind of journalism to be self-supporting. For both of you, are you surprised that 20 years on, that this is still such a tough nut to crack, or um, did you think it would, have, <laughs> it would have been solved long ago at this point? Look, it's
2: fascinating and frustrating, but I think what, what started as a challenge we were taking on that wasn't of much concern to the rest of, of the media has become not only a problem of all high-quality media, but even, to be grandiose about it, a problem of democratic society If high-quality independent journalism isn't fully supportable economically, so I think, you know, from my point of view, I've developed more and more sense of mission about solving this, even as the problem has refused to stay quite solved uh, for for the media as a whole. And you know, I think a couple of years ago, it it looked. Better for publications across the spread it looked bad then it looked better now because of Facebook and other things it's, it's, there, are, there are a lot of worries creeping in again and you know I think this is, this is an, an epic issue, and I think Slate is still totally focused on it because we want to be we want to not just survive but to really be a, a viable sustainable have a viable, sustainable, strong business that supports this this kind of content.
1: The thing that I find most heartening though about the last five years or so in internet journalism is just how clear it is that journalism is one of the things that people count on the internet for. Like it is what people want on the internet is information presented to them in in clever and useful ways. And it is the job of journalists to get information and figure out how to present it to people. And that sense of like, okay, well what do people actually want to do on uh, Facebook and in fact, what do people even want to do on Snapchat? I think at the launch of Discover, the notion that um, news snaps was a thing that was going to be of great value was seemed not quite a, like a solid proposition to all of us. Um, so the hunger for information and the ability to deliver information in multiple formats and modes and devices and spaces uh, to me seems like a good set of indicators.
0: Well, so the last question, and probably this is for you, Julia, because um, you're the editor today. Um, but based on what we've just been talking about in this age of silos of Facebook, Snapchat and things like that, um, do you have a high degree of confidence that there's still a, a strong place for independent titles, independent publishers? It's not going to be 20 years from now. Everyone will just work for Facebook or something like that. How do you, how do you feel when you think of Slate having another 20 years? Are you, you confident that Slate will still be independent?
1: I'm confident that Slate will we'll exist for 20 years more yeah. and beyond that. In terms of the business model, I don't think we'll all be subsumed, be subsumed into Facebook or to any of these platforms whose missions are not primarily journalistic. I do see across the industry a lot of collaboration. I mean, I'm constantly talking to people in similar roles mm-hmm. at, across the entire competitive set from, you know, the New York Times to the all like all size levels all levels of digital nativeness um because i think we we all see ourselves as trying to solve the same problem and sometimes we're scrapping for writers or advertising buys or whatever else but um the the collaborativeness across online media right now is at a high point i think um certainly it may it may have to do with my role at the publication now as much as anything else but that spirit of of um Joint problem solving, I don't know what that suggests about consolidation or banding together and, you know, market consolidation or anything like that. But I I think the sense that journalists need to work together to sort out the problem of sustainable journalism in the digital age is a key. And I, I don't think we'll all be working for Facebook in 20 years. <laughs> Yes. Well, uh, will we even be using Facebook in 20 years? <laughs> That's true. Absolutely.
2: Or in, in 10 years or in five years. Exactly. Um, you know, I think the way I sometimes think about it is I, I don't think there's ever been a better time to be a journalist because of the opportunities you have, the storytelling, the access you have to audience, the, the freedom you have. And for young journalists who are starting their careers, you know, I think it's a great profession to go into. I think there's never been a more challenging time to be a news publisher which has to do both with the change in the business model and just the speed of change in in the industry and that's sort of the paradox is you know there's this there's this joy and the enthusiasm about what we're creating and there's this really hard nut that we're trying to crack and keep cracked about how we support it
0: well um congratulations to slate congratulations to julia and jake um thanks for coming on the show and um adding the uh, Slate story to our uh, oral history project.
1: Thanks so much for having us. This was really fun.
0: Thanks,
2: Brian Spitz. It's a pleasure talking
0: to you. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at McC. Thanks for listening.